production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, November 18th, 2022, and I'm Marlon Primes, a partner and leader of the Business and Tort Litigation gr uh, Group at the Cleveland office of Brennan, Manna, and Diamond, and I'm a member of the Georgetown Law Board of Visitors. It, I have the distinct pleasure of introducing today's speaker, Professor Christine Henning, of uh, the Bloom Professor of Law and the Director of Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown Law. Today we are considering an important question. What happens when teachers, law enforcement, and other adults in positions of authority are less protective and more disciplinary with certain type of kids, particularly black children? Professor Henning has spent 25 years representing black children in Washington, D.C.'s juvenile courts during her tenure, she has seen, tried, and supervised uh, the trial of almost every offense in the juvenile code. At the Juvenile Justice Clinic, an initiative at Georgetown Law, she supervises law students and represents youth accused of delinquency in the D.C. Superior Court. From 2017 to 2020, Professor Henning uh, served as the law school's associate deans of clinics and experiential ex learning. And Professor Henning's new book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, she points to America's manufactured and irrational fear of black youth as a fuel for the nation's crisis in juvenile justice. From the adultification bias to dress code uh, coding, natural black hair and fashion, Professor Henning points to institutional mechanisms that criminalize normal teen behavior in black youth. Today, she will discuss our country's troubled relationship with black children and the long-term consequences of this racism in the communities of color. If you have a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. Again, that's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and the City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of today's program. So, without further ado, members and friends of the City Club and Cleveland, it is my pleasure and distinct honor to welcome Professor Christine Henning. All right, thank you so much uh, to Marlon. Um, I know you had something to do with bringing me into the space. Thank you so much to the City Club of Cleveland, uh, to the Fowlers, to St. Luke, to the Legal Aid Society, to friends um, that I know personally uh, in the audience. Um, I am really honored to be here with you to talk about this very important conversation. Um, you know, as Marlon said, I have been representing children in the nation's capital for the last 26 years. But here's the most shocking data point. 
I have only represented four white children in that entire time. That's it. Every other child that I have represented has been an African-American. For those of you who are not familiar with DC might be thinking, well, maybe there are no white children <laughs> in the nation's capital proper. Um, great. Or that white children don't commit crime. And we know that neither one of those are true, <laughs> right? Um, and so it really became hard to continue to do this work on the ground in the courts without really wanting to dismantle the whole system. <laughs> but short of that, at least wanting to ask the really hard questions, right? Questions like, why do these extreme disparities exist? Not just in Washington, DC, but all across the country and in places like Cleveland, right? And also wanting to understand whether or not the disparate, the differential perspectives and treatment of black children from other children is somehow justified. And if it's not, what do we do about it? Without wanting to know how the criminalization and the disparate treatment of black children in particular affects those children um, developmentally, right? Mentally, psychologically, and even physically. And so that's what my book is about. The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. And I have to say that I am more than anything just honored to be in a space with so many young people here um, in this conversation. Um, and I'll start here, and I'm going to end here, which is if you want to know how to make the world a better place for black children, ask them. OK? And we'll come back and talk about that. So. Let me be clear, when I talk about the arrest, prosecution, and detention of children in our nation's juvenile courts, people automatically assume that I must be talking about serious violent offenses, murder, rape, robbery, carjacking. But the data shows that very few children of any race and any class are engaged in the types of crimes that we fear most or that we hear about most on the television. Instead, our nation's juvenile courts are populated with children who are engaged in normal adolescent behaviors, right? What do we know about adolescents? I could ask you, right? <laughs> and you would tell me they're impulsive and reactive and emotional, right? They are fairness fanatics, <laughs> right? Um, they, it's not a myth. They do what their friends do, or at least what they think their friends are doing, right? Um, and they don't think ahead to the long-term consequences. That is the nature of what it means to be a teenager, to be an adolescent. But yet, time and time again, we see racial disparities in the, the number of children who appear in our courts. And so I think the best way to bring that to life for folks in the room is to tell you a story about a client that I call Sharice for purposes of the book. And Sharice was a 17-year-old child that I represented with my law students at Georgetown. And Sharice one day got into an argument with her boyfriend at school. And she was convinced that her boyfriend was cheating on her. And so she grabbed his cell phone and began to walk away. As she's walking away down the hall, she's scrolling through his text messages to see if he's been texting with someone else. A school resource officer happens to see this and decides to intervene. 
What was his intervention? To arrest her. She was arrested in the hallway, um, detained overnight in a detention facility, and prosecuted, formally prosecuted the next day for robbery, taking the property of another without right. Right? So now on paper, you've got the 17-year-old girl who looks like a violent felon, when in reality, she is a teenager engaging in normal teenage behavior. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we have children in court for that type of engagement? And so here's what's important for our conversation about race and adolescence, right? The research makes clear that children act like children all over the world, no matter what they look like and no matter where they live. It's not just a US phenomena, right? The developmental features of adolescence are found throughout the world. So there's no good adolescence, there's no bad adolescence, there's no black adolescence or brown adolescence, right? Adolescence is just adolescence, and yet disparities are evident throughout every city in our country. And even when we get annoyed, right, annoyed at the recklessness of adolescence, right, the impulsivity of adolescence, for the most part, right, we still treat most children with tolerance and grace and forgiveness and redirection, right? But black children are criminalized for virtually every feature of adolescence, right? The clothes they wear, the music that they listen to, black girls even are punished for the type, for the ways in which they style their hair, talking back to adults, coming home after curfew, even experimenting with sex and drugs, and no, I don't want any child to do those things. And I won't ask you in the audience how many of you <laughs> engaged in these behaviors, and yet you're here in this community, the city club, right? And you came out just fine. This is a nature of adolescence. And so I could pull any one of those threads, right? So just take for a moment, right? Think about music, right? Um, think about heavy metal, country, pop music, right? Rock music. All of these genres have the same sort of misogynistic themes, glorification of violence, sex, drugs, right? Almost without critique. But then when we talk about rap music and hip hop music, it's treated as if it is the most dangerous music alive, right? We could pull a thread on the clothing. Think about, for those of the older folks in the room, you remember the tie-dye t-shirts and the bell bottoms, right? From the hippie era that were commonly associated with weed and hallucinogens. We never outlaw the tie-dye t-shirt, right? Think about the all-black, I love it how some people are just laughing. That really resonated with some of you. I'm just gonna leave that alone, right? Right, but think about, right, the all-black attire and the straight black hair that was associated with the goth era, right? Um, but that was also associated with mass shootings. Of course, we never outlawed all-black attire. And even if I want to push the envelope, think about steel-toed Doc Martens with red shoelaces, which some supremacist groups have adopted as their own, right? We've never outlawed that. But what have we outlawed? There are cities across the country that have outlawed sagging pants. Again, I have no desire to see anybody's underwear. But should we make it a crime that allows for police to come in contact with a child in an encounter that can go from zero to 100 in an instant, right? Um, and even without criminal laws, what else have we criminalized? What else have we penalized? We've penalized the hoodie, right? 
You walk through a park and you see a black child with a hoodie and people are afraid, right? This is what we're talking about, the ways in which the key features of adolescence are criminalized. And even when children do commit serious crimes, right, we treat them as if they are beyond redemption. Black children are far more likely to be uh, prosecuted as adults instead of as, as children, right? Far more likely, we are far more likely to impose a severe sentence like life without the possibility of parole. We're far more likely to put a black child in solitary confinement, right, for serious behaviors. And I gotta say, pressing the envelope again, if we really wanna understand, if we really wanna think about how black children, for example, and white children are treated differently, we should look at the case of Kyle Rittenhouse, right? And I know Professor Hardaway is, has you know, uh, given extraordinary commentary on that case. And there's so, so much we could say about that case. But if we put race and class aside for just one moment and recognize that Kyle Rittenhouse's behavior was the epitome of everything we know about adolescence, right? He's a 17-year-old child, crosses state lines with an assault rifle across his body in public view, right? And he's got minimal experience with a weapon at this point, at his 17th year. But somehow in his teenage brain, he thinks he's competent enough to go out and protect businesses in this protest, right? Um, and he's impulsive, he's reactive, he's risk-taking, he's doing exactly what his friends do because his friends called him over and gave him that gun, right? Um, and he's not thinking ahead to the long-term possible outcomes. And what happens, we know he ends up taking the lives of two people and severely injuring another. And he, his mother, and rightfully so, his defense attorney want everyone to see him as a teenager, as an adolescent who just got in over his head. And you all know that he then is found not guilty. We can do the contrast. So many contrasts come to mind when we think about comparing Kyle Rittenhouse's case to right here in Cleveland to Tamir Rice. In less than three seconds, Tamir Rice is shot dead for having a toy gun in a park. He's 12, right? 12 years old. There's so much more we could say about that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's case. Also thinking about the ways in which we would never think to label Kyle Rittenhouse as a gang member. But let's put a different you know, lens on this, right? Imagine the exact same scenario if it had been a black child. Imagine a scenario where a black child gets a, a phone call from a friend. Hey, something's about to go down on the corner. Can you come out and show us some support? Kid being loyal to his friends comes out, shows up with, with his friends. Friend passes him a gun, things get out of control, and someone dies. Would we ever think of that as self-defense? Instead, we would label that gang activity, right? Notwithstanding the comparisons to what you know, Kyle Rittenhouse has done. And in fact, when you look at photographs of Kyle Rittenhouse, they're all dressed alike, all the markers of, of that sort of gang activity, right? They're in fatigues, it's all the things you think of. We don't think about, we, we did not process as a country Kyle Rittenhouse's case in the same way we would process um, uh, 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 a case involving a black child. So why is it? Why is it that a uh, why is it that both civilians and law enforcement, all of us, are more likely to perceive Tamir Rice or to perceive my client Sharice as a threat, as a danger? 
There are so many, you know, layers to that. But part of it lies in the very answer, to be quite frank, that one of the officers gave in explaining why Tamir Rice was shot. He talked repeatedly about how um, uh, Tamir appeared to be what? Older than he actually was, right? They talked about how he appeared to be standing five feet, seven inches tall, weighing, um, uh, uh, wearing a size 36 pant and an extra large jacket. Well, guess what? The research shows that Tamir Rice is not alone, that individuals, both civilians and police officers, are more likely to perceive a black child as significantly older than they actually are. There's some powerful research by Dr. Philip Atiba Goff who I, that I commend that all of you look at, showing that that folks tend to perceive black children, black males in particular, as more than four and a half years older than they actually are. That means you see a Tamir Rice and you see a 16 or a 17 year old and you see a 17 year old black child and you see a 21 or a 22 year old child. That has a profound impact on how we engage with, with, with them. Also, there's research showing that we perceive black males as older, excuse me, as bigger, taller, more muscular, right? Heavier than they actually are and heavier than a white male, a young white male that's the exact same size, exact same height, exact same body build, and with the exact same strength, upper body strength, the exact same. You perceive, you look at that black child, black young black male, and you see them as older. Similar research has been done with young black girls showing that um, individuals, adults, are more likely to perceive black girls as older, more mature, Right, more knowledgeable about adult topics than they actually are, um, less innocent and less in need of protection. All very powerful research. So, but we cannot talk about this criminalization of, of black youth without understanding how young black children perceive and experience their encounters with the police. Again, I think the best way um, to bring that to life is to share one more story, a story uh, that I, uh, about a client that I call Andre in the book. So Andre was a 15-year-old boy who's walking down the street with a friend that I call James. Um, uh, as they're walking about, there's, they're literally engaged in no activity um, out of the ordinary. They're not loud. They're not roughhousing. They're not using drugs. But two, a police car drives up. Actually, an unmarked car drives up and rolls down the window and says to them, did you hear any gunshots? At which point, both boys say no, and they keep on walking. Um, the officers are still unsatisfied, so they continue uh, to follow the boys. And they say, well, can I see your waistband? And what they're asking the boys is to just lift up their, their shirts so that the officer can make sure they don't have any weapons. Both boys lift up their shirts, and they keep on walking. The officers don't see anything. Officer still not satisfied and says, well, can we search you? At which point the boys say yes. Um, officers get out of the car, put the boys against the wall, and begin to frisk them. And I'm going to tell you as a, as a long, I've got to stop touching myself, um, but as a defense attorney, I am always baffled. Right? I'm always baffled. Why do you say yes? Why did you agree um, to be searched? Why did you agree to lift your shirt? And uh, Andre says to me, well, Miss Henning, wouldn't you? Because if we didn't, if we said no, they were going to frisk us anyway. And if we tried to run away, they would have shot us in the back. Whether that's true or not, 
is of no moment. It's the perception. It's that child's perception in that moment. There is a growing body of research documenting the extraordinary psychological trauma that policing imposes on black and Latino children. That's the, the, the studies have been done with those two populations. But demonstrating the ways, the trauma that black and brown children experience in contact with the police. The, the research shows that uh, black children who live in heavily surveilled neighborhoods or who have been the target of significant stops and frisks report high rates of fear, anxiety, depression, hopelessness. They become uh, hypervigilant, meaning simply that they're always on guard. And that distrust, that distrust that they begin to form for police officers transfers to other state actors, teachers, counselors, um, other folks who might be their ally. What's so powerful about this research is that it shows that the trauma occurs not only from being the direct contact with a police officer, but also from hearing about, witnessing these types of encounters involving friends, family, or someone that they're close to, even watching these uh, incidents even isolated incidents of, of police violence on television is just as traumatic for many um, as, as being there. And so researchers have found what they call a, a significant association uh, between traumatic events online and depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and other types of depressive symptoms among uh, black and brown uh, children. On one end of the spectrum, they're constantly at a state of hyperarousal, and then for some children, at the opposite, they're despondent, they're numb uh, to it all. Um, and so I, I always say when I, I, I do, you know, have conversations and trainings and workshops with police officers, I always say, this isn't an anti-police conversation, right? This is, and I say to officers who engage with young people um, and, and do so completely meaning well, even a wellness check, right, that that in and of itself is, becomes a source of trauma for many black and brown youth. And I remind folks, right, that the blue uniform carries with it a history of tension, um, of tense race relations in our country. And so when we approach young people, we think about strategies for safety that we have to keep that in mind, right? Really have to keep that in mind. And so before I move on from policing, I just wanna say a word about policing in schools because it's such a critical issue um, and I will tell you, until I wrote this book, I bought into the often repeated narrative that we have police in schools today because parents and teachers were afraid to send their kids back to school after the mass shooting in Columbine in 1998, right, in Colorado, right? Um, but as I did research, I realized that the first um, police in schools appeared in Indianapolis in 1939 at the, the moment of the first inkling, even, of a conversation about the possibility of integrating schools. Police presence in schools increased exponentially in the civil rights era, right? Under the, the, the uh, stated intent of creating a safe passage for, for black and brown students who would integrate schools. But we've seen, unfortunately, from the iconic photographs and, some, and from the historical record that uh, um, far too often, 
Police presence became an impediment to true and meaningful integration of schools. Fast forward to the mid-1990s. The federal government in the mid-1990s created the Federal Cops in Schools program, which is, the, which is the framework that allowed the federal government to pour money into local and state uh, school systems that would indeed hire police officers, right? What was going on in the 90s? Folks, remember? That's when we had that temporary uptick in crime and black children flat out explicitly became the target, the, 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 the poster child for all of crime in America. And in fact, the super predator myth came about, right? And, and predicted that by the year 2000, black children would run amok and rape, maim, and kill all of America. We all know that never happened, right? Not only did it not happen, but the uh, uh, Princeton professor who put forth the super predator myth had to recant within a year. Right? Because it was so faulty. But that narrative lives on today. And indeed, um, when, by the time Columbine happens in 19, uh, 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 at the, 1998, then you see that there is indeed an, in, an increase of funding for police in schools. But you all, where did police get sent to schools? They didn't get sent to the suburbs. They didn't get sent to the, right, the, the Columbines. They got sent to schools that have a predominantly black and brown presence. That's the evolution of, of police in schools. And so now um, more police in schools means more arrest in schools. More arrest in schools means more arrest of black and brown students. And since I told you the story about Sharice, here's a data point for you. Black girls are 3.6 times more likely to be arrested in their school than a white child, a white girl, right? White, um, uh, black boys are 2.4 times more likely to be arrested at their school than a white boy. And these disparities are even more disturbing when we consider research showing that traditional law enforcement strategies for school safety and for public safety are far less effective. And oftentimes, they're more harmful um, uh, than helpful. We've seen that police were presence in Columbine, Sandy Hook, Parkland, Uvalde, right? Um, the, the presence of of, of traditional law enforcement responses has not been sufficient to uh, interrupt or to prevent mass shootings. So that's a lot of information. And I know you all want to end on, uh, on, on hope and ideas and understanding about what do we do with that. Um, and so you know, there's so many uh, things that we know about what works. And I'll start this way, which is to say that we have to radically reduce the footprint of traditional law enforcement in the lives of all children, right? All children. Um, but especially black and brown children who have been so disproportionately overrepresented, right? Um, and so when I talk to police officers, this, this, you know what this means? It doesn't mean we're, it, what it means is that we're reimagining what policing is for, is that we are all come together and we think about what is it that we really need police to do, and then we relieve them of all of those responsibilities that we don't need them for, right? Like, raising our children in the school system, right? Or um, you know, intervening in a mental health crisis or intervening in a drug uh, overdose, right? Think about what we do need police for and relieve them, right, of the extra burden of those things that they don't need. But the big thing here, and this is what I want the takeaway to be, it is the, the, the fundamental way forward is about investing in alternatives, right? Alternatives to traditional law enforcement strategies. Um, and so that means adopting a public health approach 
to both school safety and to uh, community safety. What is that? A public health approach, number one, is attentive to developing meaningful relationships between children and adults. Right? That's the, the starting point. It's also, uh, a public health framework is also one that is trauma-informed and trauma-responsive. It recognizes that children today um, are experiencing significant levels of trauma, right? And that we have to be ready to engage with that. It also um, uh, calls for a restorative response, right? That seeks to repair relationships that have already been broken. And most importantly, a public health framework is one that has to be racially equitable, right? That treats all children like children, right? So what does that look like on the ground? It looks like counselors and social workers. It looks like a continuum of mental health providers for, for young people. It looks like peer intervention and positive youth supports. It also looks like social emotional learning in the classroom, and it looks like smaller class sizes. In schools, and I'm not naive, right? I live in Washington, DC. In schools where there is real evidence of violence, and let me be clear, the robbery committed, allegedly committed by my client, Sharice, is not real evidence of violence, okay? But in schools where there is real evidence of violence, we look at credible messengers, right? Um, violence interrupters, folks who look like the children um, in the schools, right? That go out and intervene and negotiate and restore relationships. That's what a public health framework looks like. So the bottom line is that we have to, have to treat all children like children. And we have to invest in children, in families, and in communities instead of our traditional law and order response. So. I thank you all for having me. Thank you. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club of Cleveland. We are joined by Professor Kristen Henning, the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown Law, and author of the book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org or our radio broadcast at 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question for our panelists, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And our City Club staff will try our best to work it into the second half of this program. May we have the first question, please? Hi, thank you so much for coming today. Um, I work at Wycliffe High School with these lovely people. And I consider myself an ally or an advocate for anyone that will allow me to. I think a common theme when someone of color gets into trouble, either with school or the law, well, why didn't they just listen to what they were told to do? And I find myself getting highly emotional when I try to argue with them. So what would be a common way to address someone that says that. Yeah, so I, I, I feel you and I feel your e emotions because I share them. Um, 
that we tend to blame children for being children. And so part of what I um, say in response to that is, is really um, urging people to see themselves in those moments, right? So if the child had just not listened, do you remember when you were a teenager? And did you listen, right? So part of, and I, you know, very much, very intentional in the book, for example, of telling stories. My desire was to have every single reader find themselves somewhere in the story, to remember what it was like to be in that moment right, or to see their own children in that moment. And so that's part of what I give back is, is an urge, a desire to, uh, 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 um, and a way to kick back and let them see themselves. And for people who don't, you know, can't reach back and can't somehow remember that moment of transgression in their own lives, it's honestly to, to share the research. The research on adolescent development shows that, look, I love y'all to death, but children don't listen, <laughs> okay? I mean, it's there. I have really, th this journey of, of, of this book, and actually not even this book, it's not about the book. It's about you know, representing children for 26 years. That journey, I have really uh, uh, made many friends who are developmental psychologists. I have learned so much about what is considered normative, what's normal, right? And guess what? Children who don't listen, that's actually, it sound, you know, as a parent, you're like, oh, I wish my kid would listen. Well, guess what? It's actually healthy, healthy at Adolescent development. They're pushing boundaries. They're testing limits, right? That's how children grow up to be leaders, right? Um, and so we have to learn to flip the frame. Um, so I, I feel you. I, I hear your pain greatly. Yeah. Uh, so we just had cash bail on the uh, on the ballot here in Ohio uh, last week. So um, could you speak to the impact that cash bail might have on disproportionality of youth within the criminal justice system with a case like Khalif Browder being the most extreme case? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I am a, a staunch opponent of, of bail for children, right? Um, for many reasons. Um, you know, first and foremost, that who's paying that bail, right? It's not the child. So the, the idea that we are going to impose bail on a child as an as a number one as a deterrent, right? That's what people think. This is a you know sort of the legal concept. If I penalize you, you won't do it again. That's not how the child's brain works, right? You know they don't know anything about deterrence. They don't know anything about oh when I get out, my mama might have to pay bail later. You know if I do something else that's 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 wrong. So it doesn't as a as a um, Criminal theory, it doesn't work, right? Children are impulsive. They're not having a rational calculus. <laughs> if I commit this crime, this is what will happen. So that's one, it just doesn't work. The other thing is it also drives an extraordinary wedge in the family at a time when we most need children to have the support of their parents, right? Even when there's that friction, that normal teenage parent friction, guess what? Kids are still paying attention and love their parents, right? So then you put a bail, uh, you impose bail on a family. Who pays it? The parents do, right? Um, or the family has to raise that money. Extraordinarily uh, punitive for the whole family. Um, and so it becomes less effective. It actually becomes more harmful than helpful because now you've created an argument. You've created tension in the family. You've created discord. So that's another major problem. The other, I, you know, maybe even should have started there. You talked about the Khalif Browder story. Guess what? People, black families, many black families who end up in the criminal legal system can't raise that money. 
right? So you talk about the heart of racial inequity, right? Um, you cannot you know, uh, detain or incarcerate a person simply by virtue of their poverty, right? And that's what, what bail does when you can't raise that money. So we had Khalif Browder, right? Folks remember him from New York. Um, he actually spent three years in Rikers Island pending trial. That in and of itself is an outrage, right? Pending trial, guess what? For something he didn't do. And even more, thinking about like how the system really failed him, the complaining witness, the victim of a real uh, uh, robbery, not saying the victim was not robbed, but the victim of the real robbery actually left the country very, very soon after the, after the alleged uh, incident and made it clear he was never coming back. So for three years, Three years, they knew he wasn't coming back and they still pursued that case. And as to the bail question, his family couldn't afford it. So if you all have watched documentaries and have seen Vernita Browder, his uh, mother interviewed, I mean, she can't talk about it without crying, without sobbing about how she couldn't come up with that money, right? And then when they couldn't come up with the money fast enough, guess what? The court then said, well, you know what? We're going to actually remove the bail anyway and we're going to uh, um, hold you on what we call in the, in the law personal, like we're going to hold you um, in, uh, um, in detention based on the severity of the crime, separate and apart from whether you could have come up with the bail, right? So they removed even the opportunity for him to post bail. So those are three sort of reasons why I'm really opposed to it in, in, in youth court. Um, you know, the media has written about riots and horrible behavior, deplorable treatment, and then we haven't really had, a, 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 the community has not been outraged. Mm -hmm. um, and so my question, in all your research, have you found any detention centers where the community has been successful in changing the conditions within that, that detention center? Um, so I would say look at the work of the campaign, formerly known as the Campaign uh, for Youth Justice. Liz Ryan is now the, um, uh, the head of the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. And so she had an organization called um, the Campaign for Youth Justice, and then they closed that and they opened another organization called Youth First Initiative. Both of those organizations were designed to close facilities. Right, um, and so in the District of Columbia, um, we closed our uh, our facility was previously called Oak Hill, um, and it was dilapidated. It was you know regimented. It was too cold in the winter and too hot in the summer, and um, all of those things. And they led a community-based campaign to get that closed, and uh, and that was their that was the the name of the campaign. Um, so I would commend you to reach out. Um, or to, to, to look at um, the work that they've done. I'd be happy to connect you with that. So there has been. I, I have to say that the way work and reform gets done, it gets done from the, from the community. It gets done from outrage. It gets done because you know, folks come together at church rallies, really, and recreation centers, and they fight you know, for all of this. Didn't you have a closing here, too? Yeah, I was going to say. I remember um, uh, Gabriella Celeste, talked to her afterwards, you know, has done some um, work around Huh? What'd you say? I talked to her. Okay, okay, right. <laughs> You're like, you want more, right? There's more to be done. There is always more to be done. But I would say at that, at that uh, national level, thinking about Liz Ryan um, uh, and, and uh, some of the work of Campaign for Youth Justice. That, sure. yeah. Hi, I have a question that was texted to us. 
How do you, as a defense attorney, advise black and brown adolescents to respond in a police situation? Oh, such a, such a, uh, I don't even know, I wanna say painful question, because I get it um, all the time. Um, uh, so, look, I, I wanna say, I'll, I'll just say it, that we, the, the first question has to be, how do we prevent <laughs> so many children from coming into contact with the police, right? Like, why is it that we call the police as the default so that they now have to figure out how to make those responses? I just have to say that. But accepting the question, you know, as it is, which I respect the question, in chapter five of the book, I talk about how um, parents, black parents in particular, have an extraordinarily difficult, almost impossible task of figuring out how to prepare black children for those inevitable moments of discrimination, right? Doesn't have to be about policing, but just period. Those inevitable moments of, 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 of racial um, uh, injustice, if you will. Um, and that's on the one hand, so that they can stay alive, right? But yet, on the other hand, not over-preparing them so that they live their lives in fear and they live their lives in a perpetual state of trauma, right? Um, and so that they don't live their lives believing that there are no uh, allies that don't look like them, right? We don't want that. So it's a very difficult and delicate line to watch um, or to walk. And so what I say is like, I don't think honestly that any black parent can afford not to give the talk, right? You know, I just don't think you can let your children go about and not ever have the talk. But at the same time, we've got to pair that talk with all of the things about black pride and about black resilience and about how black and brown children have a right to live and thrive in our country, right? And acknowledging that sometimes things will happen to you that you didn't deserve, right? But that doesn't make you less of a person, right? So you pair that, that, that talk, right? That preparation with the, with the, with the, with the narrative of, of, of black pride, to be quite frank, right? Reminding them about um, a, a people of resilience, right? And the research has shown, right, that racial socialization, a fancy word, right, for the ways in which we instill that race pride and race identity in young people actually serves as a buffer to these negative moments, right? And you give them the tools, right? We sit down and we create space for them to talk about what it feels like, right, to have been stopped, what it feels like to walk into a convenience store and have a civilian look at you like you're, you're threatening. Create space for those conversations and then give them the skills and the outlet to talk about it so that they can, you know, uh, 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 be able to engage well. Um, with police officers or others without the, the, the underlying emotion that's never been unpacked. So that's, that's the suggestion that I offer there. Um, my name's Eliza Wills. I'm a junior at Wycliffe High School. And you mentioned how we needed like, to reform our schooling and to transform our schooling. So what would you say is the very first step to get people to show empathy and become allies and want to see the change in our school that we personally could bring back to our school and all the other schools that are oh, here today. I, I love it. I think every one of you all sitting at tables together as students, you know, should get together. Like, so I, I'm not kidding. I started off saying, if you want to know how to make the world a better place for children, ask them, okay? So that means it's, it's and I, let me also be clear. I don't want to put all the burden on children, right? That it's adults have to do better, right? But in response to your question, which I just, you know, I really value, is like set your own agenda, right? Set your agenda, figure out, like if I come together as a club, those of you who came, you came for a reason. If we sit down, what are the top three priorities that you want to see for change in your school? What does it look like, 
right? And we've done some of that um, uh, work in DC, um, for example, where there are organizations that you know, will have round table with youth, right? And let them draft an agenda. What is it that you wanna, what, what change do you wanna see? I would say to teachers partnering with you know, students and sitting down and saying what is the number one priority for change and, and having teachers you know, work with the students as a part of a class assignment to come up, what's the agenda? What does that agenda look like? Right? It's creating, creating space. So, you know, um, I was at a wonderful one of those little round tables with young people and uh, this conversation about social emotional learning, teaching young people how to engage, um, uh, you know, with empathy uh, with, their, with their classmates. And one of the uh, young people that was talking to me sort of raised her hand and she said, you know, we really need to tell our teacher to move our social emotional learning class to before before lunch <laughs> because after lunch we're all tired and nobody's paying attention I mean just the smallest thing right it's like sitting down and problem-solving with young people at the table I think too much of the conversation about um, reform uh, is, is top-down so I think the first thing I would say is you know form a club <laughs> ask your teacher for a sponsor and number three identify your top three concerns and when I say concerns what do you want to see change that's as simple as that and then figure out a way for it so I wanted to know that with representing black children in Washington, D.C. about the George Floyd protests, I wanted to know that was there any time that children were being incarcerated for peacefully protesting? And did you oh. ever, what was like, what was, what was up with that? I wanted to know. Oh, that's so great. Oh, my goodness. So um, we're going to make sure you get a copy of the book because I actually tell this story. I'm not going to tell you, but the big, I'm going to answer your question. But the story at the beginning and the end of the book closed with just that, this, this idea of what happened to one of my clients who was protesting. So here's the, so a couple of things that your question makes me think of, one of which is um, that I have been so moved by the outpouring um, of uh, an activism of young people over the last several years. And it included the activism after the Parkland shooting, right, in Florida, right? Those folks, those students rose up. And let me be clear, they were very adamant that they wanted their schools to be safe, right? They didn't want any more violence, but guess what they said? We don't want police officers to make it safer. Right? They did, that wasn't the strategy. So one, there's that. In the District of Columbia, another example, we had a, you, this goes to your question about what young people can do. We had um, some really, what we consider disturbing legislation, laws being proposed that would um, erode confidentiality of juvenile court. In other words, it would make public if a kid got arrested, it would make it public to everyone, not just you know, kept confidential in the court. And I gotta tell you, over 300 students from our local high school showed up at city council and testified against that bill. Right, just powerful, powerful, powerful. They had set the the hearing. City council had set the hearing for two hours. It ended up being literally two days because they wanted the students to have an opportunity. So those are examples of protests. Then George Floyd happens, and absolutely, children showed up. Right, showed up in D.C. Came. They were bussed in from other parts of the country to Washington D.C. You know, to walk the streets. Right, um, Black Lives Matter uh, 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 Plaza. And here's the thing. I would say. Um, 
By and large, in DC, the young people were allowed to protest. However, and this is what I talk about in the book, um, there was a moment, right, um, that the protest in DC lasted a long time. Folks set up camps. I don't know if y'all know that. They set up tents out there. And, and there came a point at which the, the city made the decision to tear down the tents right, the tent cities that had formed up in response to the George Floyd uh, protests. And people got arrested then. Um, people got arrested for um, uh, not leaving the tents, for cooking food out in public, things of that nature. And so one of the clients that I represented was, uh, was that. Somebody, and, and, and what's so disturbing about that, I think that's such a powerful question, why do we arrest children when they're protesting? It is the heart of civic engagement, the heart of civic engagement. Right? Civic engagement has now become part of like the, the new, you know, the new wave of what, what needs to happen in education. But yet, you know, we've got children, you know, black and brown children who go out and protest and they get arrested. Right? Um, the other thing, the last thing I'll, I'll say about that, and this actually goes to the, the title of my book, The Rage of Innocence. And I say the title of my book is, is the rage that every single one of us should have anytime any one person is deprived of an opportunity to be a child. All right, but in addition to that, it is also the rage of black and brown children who are told over and over and over again that they are to be feared, <laughs> that they are somehow dangerous. And I say, you know, with a teenager, you know, they're not going to say, you know, to uh, Mr. Officer, I don't like the way you're treating me today. <laughs> no, they're not going to give a dissertation and a lecture. They're going to speak out of emotion, out of impulse. And sometimes it's going to sound like profanity. Sometimes it's going to sound aggressive and it's going to sound loud. Guess what? That's another form of protest, right? And that we have to make space for that, right? Um, for young people to protest in different ways. So, yeah, thank you. So I wanted to see if you can speak to something that, um, so I, I've coached youth sports for a long time and uh, served as a youth minister. Mm -hmm. I have three young adult children myself. I've had this conversation with, with various youth over the years about the fear. One of the things that they've shared is that as black youth, they'll say, well, when there are events where there are black youth, whether it's a game or a party, mm -hmm. that violence happens a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fighting. Mm -hmm. um, and these black youth will say, you know, we, we don't have any issues going to an all-white game or all-white party, but a lot of, um, whether it's at a mall, whether there's large gatherings of black youth, um, it is not false that a lot of violence does happen. I'm not saying it happens all the time. Mm -hmm. I know there are blacks that won't go to certain all-black youth, like, no, you know, something may jump off. There's this fear, this perception that something's going to happen. So... Can you speak to that? Is that a false, or do you, or would you say huh, that's that's reality? That does happen often, and you're right. There are blacks that probably don't go to all black things for use because of this vibe. And, and is that where the fear is coming from? Whether you're a police officer or whether you're white or black, that there's this fear. If there's a large black contingency of people, you fear it's going to happen. And if you do believe that, then how? What can the community do? What can parents do? What can organizations do to try to help educate on violence? Yeah. 
So, so I mean, this, this idea that violence does happen. I will never stand and say that violence doesn't happen and that violence, you know, doesn't happen at like the, the party, right? Um, here, here is the point that I really don't want us to lose when we acknowledge that, and that is again, it is like two percent of the people at that party engaged in that violence, and that our response is a over, uh, uh, it's a draconian over response to all black children because that two percent who went to that party uh, and engaged in that 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 shootout or that 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 uh, uh, violent crime and so that we cannot make uh, policy right criminal justice um, and juvenile justice policy based on that two percent that's one thing the second thing is so yes I want my I want to be safe and I want my kids to be able to go to parties where they can be safe and so we have to then ask what's the root causes of that Right? Like, where can we allocate our dollars? I feel like violence persists in our country because we've allocated dollars to traditional law enforcement that we've seen hasn't worked. Right? And so that instead, like, where are we as a community providing resources and outlet? So if you've got teenagers who are worried about going to a particular party because they're worried about a, um, about a shootout, do we have spaces that those kids can go to and play where they are welcome, where they won't be discriminated against, where they won't be looked at, you know, as if they are a threat or if they are criminal, right? And so, like, you know, you know black kids want to go to the neighborhood recreation center. Well, let them go to the neighborhood recreation center without cops parked in front you know of it right and so you know so kids I think I feel like um, and we we see it in the qualitative research meaning uh, the anecdotal studies that black kids end up going to the house party where the violence is more likely because they don't have other outlets they don't have other places where they're allowed to go and play and have recreation and leisure without adult supervision because we haven't created those safe spaces so I what, what I what I'm saying here is is it's an allocate like our strategy for, for safety has to be that public health safety, which is gonna reduce the 2% of kids who are, uh, who are engaged in criminal behavior. The, th the third thing I'll say about it, so to the extent that we do need police in our society, that's where you need police, to do the laser sharp investigation to figure out who is really engaged in that criminal behavior. And then once we've investigated and figured out who those kids are, we provide them with the services and the resources. And guess what? There's evidence-based best practices for what works, even with the most violent offenders, right? Um, and so that's what we've, we've got to do. And then the final thing is just the narrative that you know, um, you know. I, I just be honest. Like the idea that the, it's more likely that at a black party that a, a violence will will um, happen. We forget that at this may sound controversial, but at parties, right, all the way through college, where white children predominate, the crime is there. It just looks different, right? It's rape. It's it's you know. Think about all the the stories that come out. They just don't come out in the same way. Um, it may not be a shooting, but it is other violent criminal behavior that is just as devastating to the victim as as shootings. This is not to say that we that means we care less about violence in the black community. But I really I push back on the narrative that somehow a black party is more dangerous than a white party. So I just wanted to throw that in there. So. Thank you, Professor Henning. You came with the energy, and our audience certainly matched that energy. Uh, we had so many questions lined up. We're so sorry we couldn't get to them all, but you're welcome to follow up with Pro Professor Henning at the book signing immediately after the forum.
Today's forum was part of our Health Equity Series in partnership with the St. Luke's Foundation, our Criminal Justice Series in partnership with the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, and our Authors in Conversation Series with Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, the John P. Murphy Foundation, and the Cuyahoga County Public Library. Thank you to each of you for your continued support of these consequential conversations here at the City Club. We'd also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by the Shar and Chuck Fowler Family Foundation, the Centers, Delta Alpha Lambda Foundation, the Georgetown Club, Club of Cleveland, John F. Kennedy High School, the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, MC Squared STEM High School, the Positive Education Program, the St. Luke's Foundation, Shaker Heights High School, the Thurgood Marshall Oratical Debate, Yep, Education Project. That is a mouthful, and this is a lot of tables. Uh, Warrensville Heights High School and Wycliffe High School. Such an incredible roster of organizations and schools. Thank you all for being here today. Next week, we're off on holiday break, but we'll be back here at the City Club on Wednesday, November 30th, with Fatima Goss-Graves, President and CEO of the National Women's Law Center. She'll be in conversation with the YWCA of Greater Cleveland's new CEO, Helen Forbes-Fields, on the changing landscape of reproductive rights. Tickets are still available, and you can find out more at our website at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you all for being here today. I'm Cynthia Connolly, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.